Welcome to Battleground Wisconsin Podcast. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action Wisconsin. We are missing our usual host, Deputy Director Matt Brusky. This week he is on vacation, vacationing comfortably, I'm sure. And so we have, but we have a, a great panel. We have our usual panelist, Claire Zoutke, the uh, Healthcare for All Director for Citizen Action Wisconsin. So, Claire, thank you. Thank you for having me from my kitchen on Zoom. And then we've had her a couple times before, a rising star on Battleground Wisconsin, our Movement Politics Director, Joanna Bouch. So, Joanna, thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Dr. Craig. It's good to be here with you all. I'm excited for our conversation today. And we better take advantage when we can, because if all goes well, Joanna will be representing all of us in the legislature in January. As those of you who follow us know, you can find that online and find out how to get involved in Joanna's campaign if you so choose. So we have a, a, a packed agenda this time. Uh, and one thing in particular we have to talk about is the major federal appeals court decision, another attack on voting rights in Wisconsin. We're going to talk about the spreading COVID uh, pandemic, which is not going away, as Donald Trump again promised on Wednesday, and is not is spreading rapidly across the country and danger signs here in Wisconsin. Uh, we're going to talk about COVID relief, which is scheduled to expire, but is really helping billionaires, and that part won't expire. So we'll dig into that. Uh, but we had pre big press event in western Wisconsin around what we need to do to, to protect the working class and the middle class uh, during this uh, crisis. Uh, we're going to check in on the protest movement. There's some news around that in Milwaukee and in Brookfield, and Joanna will uh, pr provide some details about some of that, and we'll talk about it. And then we have a new round of uh, state legislative endorsements from Citizen Action that we will roll out at the end of Battleground Wisconsin. So let's jump on with the federal appeals court decision. This is state national headlines. I mean, Wisconsin is like the poster child for bad right-wing experimentation. But just to rewind, there was a lawsuit that Citizen Action uh, was a, a lead uh, plaintiff in uh, that was one of the successful ones. It was in federal court, and it overturned the early voting restrictions uh, that Governor Walker put in. Uh, as, as racist, actually, and unconstitutional. We, our lawyers expressly showed that. Uh, and also the, the draconian residency requirements that went from 10 to 28 days, which are a way to try to disenfranchise students who move to their campuses uh, close, to, close before elections quite often, and low-income folks, people of color who are housing insecure, often move. And so this was great. Now, after an appeal by the Republicans, three and a half years later, Claire and Joanna, the judges rule, and it's a right-wing panel, and the lead opinion, the opinion's written by Judge Frank S. Easterbrook, who is a Reagan appointee who used to work for the infamous Robert Bork, and it strikes down, I'll go through, I'm going to ask you about each of the details. So let's go through the details in general. Uh, it strikes down uh, the idea that we that you cannot limit early voting, which was critical in the 2018 election. And a lot of the turnout uh, walk uh, is believed by Republicans to have cost uh, Scott Walker the election in the cities and people of color in the Milwaukee area in particular, but also overall. 
Uh, it strikes that down, and we're back to two weeks. It also, and that's the big change. Fortunately, it doesn't go back to the one location requirement, which was in the original law, because the lame duck legislature changed that to try to pass uh, legal muster. We sued, and that was struck down as well. But we're at the we're at the weaker law. So, I want to get both your reactions to the court doing this this close to one of the most important elections and one of the most important states in recent American history, right? Um, and and limiting people's ability to vote, uh, and especially not just generally, there's a democracy issue, right? But during a pandemic. So I will throw it open to either of you who feels inspired to talk about, talk about this decision. I mean, look, we've said it before on this podcast, and I'm sure we'll say it again. I feel like it's a common refrain almost every week now. But the judiciary as a whole, we cannot pretend that they aren't just regular people with their own biases and with their own political views. And they very often make political decisions, whether they do so um you know, with that intent or not. And this is, and this is clearly another example of that. It is a a shame. uh, And I wish I could say that I am surprised, but I am not, that one of the most basic uh, rights of our, of our country, uh, the foundational, one of the foundational values of us as a nation and a people is the right to vote is yet again, threatened. And we have come so far through so many centuries of expanding the right to vote, of recognizing and trying to rectify past errors of limiting the right to vote to an elite few, um, that the long trajectory of our, of our nation's history is trying to, um, is trying to move away from disenfranchisement. Um, and yet, you know, we keep getting these court cases that want to bring us back to past decades where we put up barriers to people uh, being able to exercise their right to vote. Um, I mean, this, you know, this smacks of, of a racial and classist disenfranchisement um, of errors that we should be moving away from instead of um, instead of what we should be doing, which is expanding the right to vote. Now, I'm glad that I work for an organization that is on the right side of this and fought in the courts to try to expand the right to vote for folks um, and expand enfranchisement, especially folks who have um, who, who traditionally faced barriers um, to exercising the right to vote. So this is, uh, like I said, not surprising, um, certainly sickening, but uh, fortunately not surprising. Um, but I know we're going to keep fighting for what's right. Let me dig in on a piece of what you said, Claire, and pitch it to Joanna for this. You brought up the issue of race, okay? So the original case, there was direct evidence presented by our lawyers, and it was us and one Wisconsin now at the time, the Institute for One Wisconsin, their C3 arm, though they, have, they, they, they've, they, they don't have staff right now, so they've mostly gone into other organizations and now, but they, everyone remembers them. And so the lawyers showed, for example, that they were panicked, the Republicans, a number of them said so, by the large turnout in Milwaukee. And you know, in Wisconsin, Milwaukee means people of color. It's coded, but they, it was more than just code. They literally, during the floor debate, showed a big picture of people, a large number of black and brown people voting in Milwaukee during one of the floor speeches, okay? 
So literally, they made it clear, and there was other evidence that was in the media. The media was reporting that was their concern. And so that's unusual. Usually, they deny a racial uh, motivation. So, Joanna, what just, Justice Estabrook did is he did two things. First, he denied, he just denied the evidence. I don't see racism. He said it's just partisanship. Then he said, based on the gerrymandering decision, Gill versus Whitford, where Justice Roberts refused to finally take up and, uh, and go along with the Wisconsin gerrymandering ruling, which is all about racism, the great case we had. Uh, but he said partisanship was not as much of a problem as race. Just as Justice Judge Estabrook says that partisan changes, that lower voting of some groups for others, that that motivation is fine. And the reason is the Supreme Court decision. The reason is the other party could change it later. Now, now Democrats in Wisconsin have had full control of the legislature and the governorship for two years since 1985. So it's unclear when we would change it. But it seems to me in the Jim Crow South, all the black and brown folks were in one party and the white folks in another. And that's kind of what's happening now. And so it seems like this is a backdoor way to legalize Jim Crow. I want to see if you think I'm going too far, Joanna, or uh, no, what's your reaction absolutely, is. No, absolutely not, Robert. I mean, I think that you're right on. I mean, we, we know that the GOP has serious intentions about blocking black and brown people um, getting access to the ballot, right? Like, that's a real thing. We're not making this up. Um, and it comes in all the ridiculous barriers that they put up, um, including limiting voting, uh, limiting early voting and, um, you know, voter ID. All of these things have been put in place to stop Milwaukee, a.k.a. black and brown folks, from getting to the polls. Uh, I think that GOP, the GOP has is starting to realize that their messaging uh, is not resonating with Wisconsinites anymore, right? They saw it with uh, the overwhelming support for Jill Karofsky. Wisconsinites are changing times, right? And they're getting uh, back to, uh, you know, standing up for their neighbors and their friends uh, across the entire state. And I think the GOP is scared. And so they're trying to use every single tactic that they can to stop us from getting to the polls. Um, I mean, and that's why it took them three and a half years to overturn this, right? Like they're challenging this now because they're scared now, because it's real now. Like things are changing. Like the movement is real. Uh, it's coming from, I, I believe, the people in the streets, right? It's starting there and it's flourishing out across the entire state. And we're, do we're done. We're done with these racist policies. We're done with these racist politicians. Um yeah, and, and GOP are going to do whatever they can to, to stop us from getting to the polls. Like Claire said, I'm, I'm not surprised. We're going to have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll finish up on the federal appeals court decision, and then we'll get into all of the pandemic news. So you're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin, subbing for Matt Brusky our deputy director and usual host who is on vacation. And we have as a guest panelist, in addition to our usual panelist, Claire Zautke, Joanna Bouch, our, our, our movement politics director, but also a candidate for state assembly in Milwaukee. Uh, in her other, in her, in her other non-citizen action time, we want to finish up on the federal appeals court. We talked about how they struck that, they, they reimposed the lame duck rules on early voting, lame duck session rules after three and a half years. One thing I happen to know from an inside source that the Election Commission had already printed 
over a million ballots and envelopes that have the 10-day residency requirement, which was also extended 28 days. So this is going to cost the state millions of dollars as well because it's coming this late. So throwing it in this late is like almost a sign of sabotage, and, and it makes it very hard to get any U.S. Supreme Court decision if we were going to try to do it. So here's where things stand. There's two state big questions. There's, is this appealable? And can we organize our way out of this with good organizing? In other words, is there enough left that we can still enfranchise everyone going into this critical election that's during a pandemic when there's going to be incredible interest in voting? And so on the appeal, I will just let you all know, because I'm talking to our lawyers and we have really good advice. I mean, a partner, I don't talk to him. But our, uh, the, our lawyers do. A partner in this is Eric Holder's organization, so the former attorney general of President Obama. So we're not lacking for high-level advice. Our lawyers aren't. Uh, but they could appeal to the whole federal appellate court. This was a three-judge panel, so that would mean an, it's called an en banc appeal. Um, and they'd have to make the judge whether the Seventh Circuit is a good place to do that. Uh, the other thing is they can go directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. The question there is, if you're wrong about it and you lose, you create a horrible precedent for the whole country. And so you have to judge very carefully. So there's not a determination yet, but our lawyers are looking at all the options, and they're very, they're, they're very good uh, voting rights lawyers. But then there's the next question, which I want to pitch to all of you, is organizing part so because they reverted to the lame duck, because they, because they, uh, and not the original law, there's no limit on locations or hours, just a two-week limit for early voting. So municipalities could have 100, 200. You know, they could have as many as they have on election day or, or do that part of it. So I want to see from Joanna and Claire uh, whether they think by local organizing it's possible to get local municipalities across the state to actually do that um, and figure out how many polling places they need to empower everyone and make the vote safe so people are not in long lines and they're not crowded into small locations during a pandemic. So we do not have the pandemic primary on a new massive scale in the general election. So whichever you want to suggest, you think I'm, I'm suggesting there's an organizing way out of this, but I maybe I'm not the optimist. So you can throw cold water on it or you can you can elaborate. Whatever we have to do to make that one grow, Robert. I always believe in organizing. I always believe in grassroots organizing. I believe in the people. We just got to get on it, right? Like we got to make sure that people know that this is happening. We have to make sure that this that folks know that uh, these laws were overturned and that uh, they are successfully limiting access to early voting. And so um, I think that we can get out here and put pressure on these individual municipalities to take the power that they have and use it. Um, make sure that there's more vote polling locations, right? Like polling locations com compatible with your population, right? Po the hours, right? The hours, what time are they going to be open from? Like use the power that they, they the, the individual municipalities need to use the power that they have. Um, to make sure that we all have access to the ballot. So, Claire, uh, Battleground Wisconsin listeners know that you have deep experience in local government, former Milwaukee public school director. So people like myself and Joanna run in front of people like who you were and that when you had that hat. 
and make all these demands and you deal with this tight budget and all these constraints and all these federal mandates. What is your sense of how hard it would be to get local governments who have not been bailed out in the pandemic, unlike billionaires, which we'll talk about later, and you'll talk about, Claire, but do you think this is something doable for local governments, especially when you consider both the voting rights and the public health implications of having a pandemic general election? I say it's incredibly doable. It is going to be uh, a, a challenge and a strain on budgets potentially. Um, but so is everything right now. The, the pandemic has put a squeeze on everything. So at that point, it's just a matter of prioritizing what are the things that I am going to invest my you know, limited critical resources in. And I think that it is still fresh, or I expect at least, that it would still be fresh in the minds of local uh, leaders, especially public health officers and um, uh, election directors, that uh, the first pandemic primary that Wisconsin had um, when we were voting in the state's uh, presidential primary this past spring, our April election, um, of the stark difference, for example, between what happened in Madison versus what happened in Milwaukee and um, how um, some elections that took place uh, even throughout Dane County, you know, and, and around the state that had drive up voting and had multiple polling locations where the lines were not very long and people moved through very quickly stands in stark contrast to what happened in the city of Milwaukee, where people stood in line for hours and hours, and it was virtually impossible to keep people spaced six feet apart. Um, so I think that image and those photographs are fresh in people's minds, and nobody wants to be the, the election director who ends up on the front page of national media again because they were forewarned that this could happen and they did not um, they did not take that seriously and did not adjust uh, their practices accordingly. So um, I think it actually will not take that much to um, make a cogent argument to uh, folks that run elections that they should uh, that they should make sure they have an increased number of polling locations and hours for running um, early voting so we can reduce in-person day of the election voting. Okay, with what both of you said, I feel better. And I think in general, as a progressive movement, we need to think about what the next fight is and how we fix things rather than becoming fatalistic. And so this is an example. Citizen Action is organizing in our organizing co-op region. So on this, Milwaukee, Green Bay, Appleton, Wausau, Eau Claire, La Crosse, and we have partners in all the other areas that are leading. And so you can get involved, and you all, we need you listeners to help make this happen. A number of you are municipal officials. So if you're on a city council or county board, for example, uh, then you have a role. Or if you have any voice in your community or you're a leader in your community and not elected. And so this is critical that we need to keep going. We will keep you updated on whether there's an appeal to the whole appellate court or to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, but we will be doing this organizing either way. We were doing it already to try to maximize the old law. So let me go to COVID-19. Look, we got a situation, right? It's blowing up all over the country. Arizona's the New York, Texas, Florida, uh, uh, the South and the West. 
and it's going up in 30 states right now. It is including uh, Wisconsin. So Donald Trump has been saying consistently it will just go away. He said it again on Wednesday, July 1st. Uh, a lot of us heard that and were like, we thought it was a replay of an old comment. What, that that was today? It was. So that, that that's a microcosm of how incompetent the federal response has been. But that's where we are. And in Wisconsin, we're, we're hung, hung we're, we're hemmed in because the Republican legislature is acting very Trumpy. And we only have Governor Evers and he can't get any additional money other than the one amount of federal money we got. And the new federal money we need to get is being held up by Mitch McConnell and Trump, uh, though there's a real push to get it in July. And so why don't we talk a little bit about what's going on? We know that in Wisconsin, people know the national scene. Madison's looking at closing all the bars and, 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 and ratcheting down again. Milwaukee is being pushed to think about a, uh, a face mask requirement, real problem around the country in here with people not wearing face masks. I can tell you, driving back from La Crosse this week for an event in the middle of the state, in like Juneau County, they're not wearing face masks in big air, in, in, in crowded, big kind of like convenience stores, like quick trips on the, on the highway. They're not. And uh, Racine had a good safety ordinance that Mayor Corey Mason led on, and a right-wing judge just struck it down. And it's spreading among the young, and a lot of people want to blame it on protests, but it looks more like it's bars and parties. So I want to see if there's any element there, uh, and I know, Joanna, you probably have an opinion on that the, the insistent on the media and the right and some Democrats that the protests are going to cause an uptick. Uh, on any of those pieces here in Wisconsin, or things I've not mentioned, which you're you're involved in, is very plugged in Wisconsinite. I'll say that um, I was one of the people who, at the beginning of um, all of these protests, was concerned uh, that they could lead to an uptick in COVID cases, and I was really glad that Citizen Action um, was one of the groups taking. Um, who was uh, taking responsibility for trying to hand out masks and make sure that folks were um, encouraged to go out and uh, protest for what's right, um, but also do so safely. I am also really, really happy that as we learn more, we increasingly know that it is more difficult for the virus, just not impossible, but more difficult for the virus to spread outside than it does inside. So we got to take a quick break, Claire. We will pick up what you're saying. Uh, you, can, you can start a new sentence <laughs> right after the break. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Okay, welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. I rudely cut Claire off at the last break, so I'm handing it back to her to continue her discussion of COVID-19 outbreak and what we've learned about outdoor versus indoor, which is driving a lot of where the real uh, sources of transmission are, more bars than protests. But go ahead, Claire. Yeah, exactly. And um, so, yeah, so we know that it is um, not impossible for the virus to spread outside, but that it is much, much, much more likely um, for a group of people um, who are indoors versus outdoors to experience um, an outbreak because of a few people who are infected. And um, it is, um, it is, critical that we recognize that it is not the protests that are driving these recent outbreaks, but as um, a lot of local reporters and national coverage has shown, it is actually particularly young folks who are, you know, 
other other adults too, but in the recent spikes of 20-somethings who are experiencing this, uh, who are experiencing, uh, experiencing um, new cases of the virus, it's folks who are going to bars. I mean, I look, I just finished grad school about a year and a half ago at UW-Madison, and so I know about where all the college undergrad bars are, and I have been seeing pictures floating around on social media of them, of these undergrad bars with lines of dozens and dozens of people outside of them packed closely together waiting to get inside. So it is, it is true. Like that is how this virus is spreading amongst young folks, people who are going together places inside. And that's why I am super worried about cities like Madison and Milwaukee that have, you know, a lot of bars and colleges and universities with young students that are drawn to them entering phases three and four of reopening where they're saying we can now have more than 25% capacity indoors. We can have 50% capacity indoors. That feels really unsafe. Yeah. And let me just uh, drill down on that. Uh, I was just in lacrosse for an event we're going to talk about in a second, in a minute. And so, you know that, and we've known this a couple of weeks, lacrosse has the highest reproduction rate, what's called the r naught, which is the, it's a critical data piece. It's how many people each infected person infects. Infects. Lacrosse's is, is, is higher than Arizona's. Lacrosse's is the highest in the state. And of course, it's been that way a couple of weeks. And lo and behold, yesterday, lacrosse had more new cases of COVID-19 than Milwaukee, which is just a little bit bigger and has more at-risk populations. I was talking to people in La Crosse, our members in the Griffiths Area Co-op and our organizer, uh, Ben Wilson, and they say the bars in downtown La Crosse, the college bars are small and they're cramped and they're packed. And there you have it. But Joanna, I know you're someone who, at least I'm sure that you're very a teetotaler, but you know about the bar scene and are connected in some ways. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, so, I mean, first, like Claire was saying, I want to shout out our work that we were doing, right? We've been at protests, we're handing out masks uh, to folks, uh, because we know that it's, we should be in the streets, and we should be advocating like that for um, the Black Lives Matter movement and um, the other injustices that communities of color are facing. Like, I mean, you know, yeah, I'm not going to the bars, but I just saw a post the other day on Facebook that Denny's, which is a a hugely famous bar in Milwaukee um, announced that a case of COVID got to their building and now they have to close. Like it's real. This is happening. And it's inevitable that these other bars are going to have COVID come through their buildings too. Um, You know, as y'all know, my, my sister just got into a car accident, which is not funny, but my sister got into a car accident. We were out yesterday shopping for a car and we're at the dealership and nobody has a mask on. None of the workers do. None of the other people buying cars. It's just my sister and I wearing our masks. Then we go, we order food and we go pick it up. Again, the restaurant, nobody is wearing masks. Like we just went in to get our food and leave. Um, But there are families sitting down and having meals. There are people standing in line, ordering food, waiting for food, and nobody's wearing a mask, right? Um, So... Yeah, I just I don't know what what's going on and like why people don't believe in this. You know, they say to wear masks when you're working in like these chemical plants and supposedly that that's going to protect you from those those fumes and those chemicals. Right. But all of a sudden now a mask won't protect you from this pandemic virus. Right. And so, you know, I know the importance of wearing masks and 
we're, you know, we talked about how in the city they're putting forth, trying to put forth legislation that we have to, that it's a mass requirement, right? But I'm really fearful for that to happen, um, for that to pass and that to be in place. I believe that it can be a tool used against black and brown folks. Again, um, I think that it's pro-police legislation. I think that they are going to just use that to break up protests. And the moment they see one person not wearing a mask, it's going to be like, oh, well, we saw hundreds of people at that protest not wearing masks. And they're just going to come in, like you were saying, Robert, and you know, with whatever the, their tear gas and whatnot, trying to push people all in closer spaces, which is what we're not supposed to be doing. Um, so I don't know. I'm I'm really I'm nervous about that passing um, at, at the local level because uh, I'm really fearful for the protesters and black and brown communities. Let me dig into that. Um, this is a real dilemma, Joanna, right, and Claire. On the one hand. We have a president and a party because he is the, he is the consequence of a right wing movement that's been building for decades. He's not some aberration that has made it a political thing not to wear a mask. There's no other country that hasn't just required it. There's no example of it being voluntary anyway. Humans need mandates. Right. And you have continuing ongoing conspiracy. The Tavern League is going crazy about uh, limiting bars to 50% capacity is threatening to sue all these cities and towns. So you have the right-wing conspiracy, and believe me, the Tavern League is part of it, as are the other, a lot of the other business corporate lobbies in Wisconsin. They're not separate from it. So you have that going on, but you have what, what's done with any law, it's not applied fairly, right? So do either of you think, and Claire has a lot of experience with this in, in, in school governance, where a seemingly neutral law is not neutral in, in, in the way it's dealt with, like truancy, right? So the question is, is there, what do we do? We're going to kill people and more black and brown people because of the, of the social disparities. If we don't get people wearing face masks, but if we mandate it, it's going to be abused by our structurally racist police system which does not mean every single officer is a racist. The system is racist, and some of the individual officers certainly are racist. But uh, either of you, uh, do you think there's a way to do both? Can I just add one more complicating factor to this? Oh, great. More complication. Go ahead, Claire. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, even why we're in, we're in more between a, a rock and, and you know, two or three hard cases, um, is that the reason why this needs to be done or or why local folks like council members and mayors um, are forced to put forward things like mass requirements at the local level is because our state legislative Republicans, you know, sued the governor who was trying to take statewide equal action to like make a standard of care across the state. And they sued him to say, no, we want this responsibility. And then for months, have refused to come back into session to take that responsibility and actually do something. So that's why we're forced to make these really awful decisions and like take on this responsibility at the local level. And that stinks. Though so I agree totally. I'm glad you added that. But Joanna, uh, on the other hand, a state, you know, mask, uh, face covering rule by emergency rule, which other governors have done, North Carolina, look at the other governors just doing it with their power, right? But Governor Evers can't. But it still could cause, Joanna, what you're saying. Is there a way, do you think, and we should talk, We don't. you don't have to have an answer right off, to craft 
uh, such a restriction in a way that it cannot be applied in a discriminatory way? So I've been thinking about it. I mean, and just some things that come to mind, like initially, right? Because um, I haven't spent too much time on this, but um, and having it be the on the enforcement of businesses, right? Like you cannot go to Target without a mask on. You cannot go to Menards. You cannot go to the grocery store. You cannot go into Family Dollar, right? Like, no no mask right like remember you know how they have the signs no shoes no shirt no mask right like no service like all of that throw that little icon on the little sticker right on the mcdonald's door that has a cross against you know it's no shirt no shoes add on there no mask um so that's one thing that i thought about putting the pressure on businesses uh establishments um i think that that's, I don't know, that's just one thing that I thought about. I'm not sure about other ways that we can enforce this safely. You know, it just goes no, back I to all good. these laws we're trying, yeah, all these laws we're trying to put in, into place, right, the legislation. This stuff doesn't matter if we're not changing culture, right? Like, it doesn't matter if we um, change the way, you know, police officers are trained or, you know, their budget and things. If, if they still have this mentality of white supremacy, of patriarchy right like we're still screwed <laughs> um and so i don't know i just i just want us to be careful right. it's a really dangerous time i think these are great points i think it's fascinating that and i i think i agree with you that we we trust you know target employees more than police to make these determinations and mcdonald's employees but i agree and then the other thing is that so there's that but then there's a question whether you could build into the law something that really punishes police for, ha like, makes them track the racial composition of who they're citing and, like, really holds them accountable. But we, we're out of time for this segment. And those we're workers gonna... can't even get 15 an hour. Exactly. Those workers can't even get 15 an hour, and they're making better decisions than our police. And a lot, and of, them can't get, and a lot of them can't get PPE, exactly. So with that, we, we will be back at Battleground Wisconsin after this break. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin, subbing for our usual host, Matt Brusky, and joined by Claire Zoutke and Joanna Bouch. So we just finished talking about the spread of COVID-19 and all of the risk in Wisconsin, and especially in the southern and western part of the United States, uh, and the failure of Donald Trump's uh, wish for it to go away on its own. So... The next question is, this has caused recession, depression kind of conditions. And so there's a lot going on in regard to that. In other words, there are two elements of this crisis, and they both stem from the pandemic itself. And we know there was a bunch of emergency relief that came through at the end of March called the CARES Act, only big thing that got through. And no one knew how long the pandemic would last. People probably assumed in Congress that... Uh, this would be a normal federal government, and we'd fly into action like in other national disasters. Not so much. And so here we are, unemployment insurance, which is one of the major ways people were supported, um, is ex that gave extra payments for both unemployment and for work share. That is something that keeps people employed at work with fewer hours and not losing money. Expires at the end of July. Not, nothing close to a deal in Congress being held up by Republicans in the Senate and by Trump. 
And so, and then not even doing enough. This isn't sufficient. We need a new deal like jobs program. So we had our first live event since the uh, since stay at home in La Crosse, all safe and socially distanced with action face masks, and got a whole bunch of media coverage for not only maintaining what we're doing, but really doing a whole new new deal like the 1930s. But this time, instead of building the the, the post-war economy by and also putting people to work building the new green economy to claim uh, to create to prevent a climate genocide. So uh, we got a lot of press on that. But meanwhile, and we did this on Wednesday, Claire was the leader on this. Uh, we partnered with two national organizations to put a report out on how well billionaires are doing and how they got more money than in uh, then middle class and uh, working class people got. And in fact, their net worth is skyrocketing. We're talking about billionaires like John Menard in Wisconsin. There are eight that Claire's going to talk about, like Diane Hendricks, the famous billionaire who Walker promised he was dividing and conquering. He'd go after private unions next. So, Claire, what did we learn? Uh, We've got a lot of attention to this uh, in just the last, uh, really, 36 hours. I mean, less than that, more like uh, more like uh, 16 hours since this uh, since we released this report. So, Claire, tell us what we found, our partners, everything we listeners need to know about this report. Yeah, thanks, Robert. Um, I'll try to be quick and concise about this, because I think the I think everybody's going to get the point, which is that Wisconsin has eight billionaires. Um, and some of them, Robert listed, are, are you know names that we might recognize, like John Menards of Menards Store, um, Herbert Kohler from Kohler Appliance and, and Fixtures, um, and uh, these are these are folks who started out as uh, at the beginning of the pandemic as billionaires, but whose net worth has increased tremendously since the pandemic started. Uh, for example, John Menard Jr.'s wealth um, increased by uh, 30, about, or sorry, 30, oh my gosh, so much more than that, about uh, 65% within the last three months. So um, he gained an extra um, $7.5 billion in net worth. Um, it's, it's really astounding. And um, a lot of this is because, um, you know, folks might have businesses that people are utilizing more um, during the pandemic. Um, but also a lot of this is, is tied to um, stock worth. And once again, an example of Donald Trump prioritizing, um, for example, like making the stock market work for billionaires instead of trying to put money in the pockets of people who are struggling. And that's what's so unconscionable about this. That, that hey, eight- hey, Claire, one quick question. Wasn't there also a huge tax break for the 1% thrown into the CARES Act by Republicans as well? I will just say this. Yes, there was a huge giveaway that's a big part of this as well. So, Claire, sorry for interrupting, but I want to throw in that there's all that what you talked about is critical, but there was a direct rigging of of COVID-19 relief because, of course, billionaires needed even more help. That's what uh, Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell Republicans thought, and they sucked that into the bill. But go go right ahead about the implications. It's all fit together. I think that's important context, right? Because that's the same legislation that gave um, regular, not billionaire Americans about $1,200 in their direct checking accounts. And we haven't even been able to pass legislation to give another round of stimulus checks. Meanwhile, these billionaires are raking in more and more money because the, the, the country and the economy is rigged in their favor. And, uh, 
So, so they profit off of the pandemic. Meanwhile, regular folks, and I, and I want to throw this in there. I know this is not what we tease, but I think it's really important. Um, regular folks are still, still dealing with um, the pandemic and trying to figure out how to get through it, right? So big pharmaceutical companies are also profiting off of this. And um, the, the first drug that was approved or tentatively approved to treat COVID-19 remdesivir by um, big pharma company Gilead just announced that it's going to cost over $3,000 for a single treatment um, of this drug. And we have no idea if people are going to be able to afford that. So this is just another example of regular folks um, facing a tremendous amount of financial uncertainty as during the middle of the worst public health crisis of the our, or several generations you know, while, again, there are eight folks who just continue to profit. They had a $135 billion handout, uh, mostly for rich people, in the uh, CARES Act. Republicans slipped in on top of the Bush, the Trump tax cuts, which were on top of the Bush tax cuts, right? So this, this all fits together. Now, Joanna, you are campaigning among a lot of low-income folks, working folks, right, trying to make ends meet during these depression-like conditions, how do you think they'd feel about how we, we help the billionaires more than we help the average people and that their benefits, like their tax cuts, those aren't expiring, but unemployment benefits are? I mean, I think same thing that they've been feeling for a long time. This has constantly been happening to poor people where they are overlooked in all different situations, right? And it's unfortunate that at this very scary time for a lot of people, um, that there still isn't a handout to offer help. It's just it's just an unfortunate thing that um, you know poor people are never you know put on top of prioritizing prioritizing right. Like we're constantly prioritizing these rich billionaires um, and just trying and they want to just continue to help them get them more money right. Like it's never about poor people. It's never about people of color. Um, I think that's why our work in movement politics is so important, right? Like just trying to change the way things are. Um, so we just got to organize our way out of this mess. And I see that we are making some strides and seeing some changes. Um, and we just got to keep going. Yeah. And I think this is a real wake up call that we're on the verge of cutting off uh, increased unemployment benefits. We only got one $12 payment for everyone else. Only one. How long will that get you? We're allowing evictions again. We're allowing utility cutoffs again. We're going back to normal. There are no jobs. And the question is, really, the Republicans don't get it at all, but will the Democrats be bold enough and actually do something like what FDR did? Because that's the level of the crisis. And so, and it's their responsibility. But the protest movement continues. And I'm glad, Joanna, you pointed out that police is the tip of the spear, right? There's a whole economic system here that's being protected by mass incarceration, by over-policing. And the protest movement continues. It's going to be really hard to get structural reform, but that's why we're here, to do the hard things. Uh, you did have news this week. I'm sure I'm going to miss a lot of it, but a big defund the police um, kind of spray painting and giant red letters was put on the big street, Water Street, in front of Milwaukee City Hall. And they're looking at what it would look like to take 10% of the police budget, which is a, a step. But then the question is, do you actually do it? And what do you actually do with the money? So, and you also, though you also have the downside, Joanna, 
Uh, you had this incident in Brookfield. Could you just say a few words? We only have a few minutes left in this in this segment, but uh, about what went down in suburban Milwaukee. Yeah, right. Like, so what happened in, in Brookfield was that these two young African American men, right, underage, thirteen and seventeen, I think, um, were were caught stealing and um police were called and it's they're reporting that police from three different cities had to come for these two young men i think i was reading an article where a woman described one of the uh youth as like a scrawny right like skinny and um and she talks about how she saw a police officer putting their knee on one of these young men um and so like the, the police brutality continues as we are still out in the streets advocating for, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and the defunding and divesting of police funding. Um, and so it's still happening right here in our community. Um, like it, this happened yesterday at Burlington because supposedly the, or because these two young men stole some socks, right? Like, can we talk about like, why are they even stealing socks? Like, what is the yeah. real, like, so, so we, I know we you got a, have a couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah. We're almost done. Well, I'm going to pitch it back to you, Joanna, but they stole socks and a belt, and this required a massive police response, but they were kids of color, right? So yep. the electing good leaders is part of this as well, in addition to being mobilized and active and, being, and really having a movement. So, Joanna, Citizen Action made some more endorsements. Uh, why don't you talk about a little bit about what they are? We have, like a, we have less than a minute and where people can find the whole list. Yeah, so we're continuing to move through our endorsement process, endorsing uh, candidates for the state level, Senate, and Assembly. Uh, we just had our second round, as Robert mentioned, of some in candidates, uh, some in some primary races, some just facing off in for the general. But you can see our full list at citizenactionofwisconsin.org, and you can check out all the candidates that we just announced this past that we just endorsed this past week as well as the endorsements that we pushed out earlier in June. So that is citizenactionwy.org or just Google Citizen Action of Wisconsin. So we're out of time this week. Thank you for listening to Battleground Wisconsin. And until then, have a safe week.